Well, good evening. Uh, this morning, we, uh, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. We had a lesson talking about lust, and uh, we talked about some of the pitfalls and the dangers that are associated with it. Um, we're going to continue to talk about lust tonight, but we're going to do it in a slightly different way. Uh, we're going to have a lesson on, uh, well, on a couple of things, but uh, one of them in uh, just kind of a, this is, a, I guess, a side point, but I think it's interesting. It is the value and the importance of understanding context when you approach the Bible and when you approach words in the Bible and you, when you approach ideas in the Bible. For example, lust itself, I say that, and most of us when we hear that word, especially after this morning, we're going to be thinking something about sexual desire for someone else, uh, whether it is, uh, you know, pornography or whether it is, uh, you know, someone that you know personally who you're beginning to, to desire, to crave in, in a way that uh, would be ungodly. Uh, but that, those types of thoughts and desires are some of the first images that come to mind when we think of the word lust. But in the Bible, if you were to do a study on the word lust, you'll see that it's actually used quite a few different ways. Uh, sometimes lust is, yes, uh, sexual desire. Uh, sometimes lust is a desire for money or for wealth. As a matter of fact, uh, I mentioned this morning that in the Ten Commandments, as you read through them, there is the commandment Jesus quotes that says, thou shalt not commit adultery. But if you go on down just a little bit further, it mentions not to covet your neighbor's possessions or your neighbor's wife. Uh, that word covet is the same word that he uses that's translated as lust. And so in that, uh, the idea of coveting, craving or desiring, wanting something that belongs to somebody else, whether it's their wife or whether it's their goods or whether it's their house or their property or their cattle or whatever. Like, wealth is an object of lust. Um, when you read through uh, Luke, uh, in chapter 15, you get the parable of the prodigal son. And in there, you have that word for lust that's used. And do you know how it's used there? The son, after he leaves his father's home and he spends all of his money on prostitutes and riotous living. It doesn't use the word when it talks about the prostitutes and the riotous living. It uses the word when he has nothing, and he sees them feeding the pigs, and he desires or he lusts for the slop that's given to the pigs. That's what has become his ultimate desire now. And by the way, uh, that's, a, that's a gross image, but it's an image that I think can be an accurate depiction of what our lusts can do when they're unchecked. They can end up growing more and more and more vile. The, the less that we fight against them and the more we give into them, the stronger they get and the more that we can crave things that at one point in our lives we never would have thought we would lust after. We never would have thought we could crave that. And now, because of this long trail that we've gone down, we end up craving even the slop that's there with the unclean pigs. That, that's his, when he was at his father's house, he never would have desired that. Now it's all he can think about. Um, that happens to people. Uh, when you talk about things like do not murder, do not commit adultery, those seem like rather obvious commands to us. We should know not to do those things. But it's when you don't check your anger and when you don't check your lust that you end up getting involved in those things further on down the line that you never thought you would. But that's, that's Luke 15. It uses it right there to talk about 
uh, to talk about the pig slop. Um, in the next chapter, you have the rich man and Lazarus. And here, it's used of, uh, the, uh, of Lazarus. Remember, Lazarus has nothing, and he's hungry, and he's covered in sores, and the dogs lick his wounds. And it mentions that he covets the food that the rich man eats. Um, it doesn't use it in a negative. It doesn't use it as though like he's being sinful for that. Remember, he goes to Abraham's bosom. But that is the word that's used to describe his desire for something better. So sometimes it is used for sinful things like sex uh, outside of marriage or sex with someone else's wife or, or whatever. Sometimes it's used for wealth. Sometimes it is used for just uh, the immorality of this world. Sometimes it can be even a, a neutral desire, though, something that's not. I mean, if you're poor and starving to death and you desire food, that's not wrong. That, that's what Lazarus was doing, and that's the word that's used for that. And so it's one of those things that context matters a lot when you look at it. Some Sometimes lust is itself a sin. Like I think what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, lust itself, looking at a woman to lust, like I think there's intentionality there, but intentional lust itself is sinful. There are other passages though where lust is something that can lead to sin, but isn't necessarily itself sin. For example, James gives this progression of, of uh, lust. He says, each one is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own lusts or desires. So lust, in that context, it's something you desire, and it leads to temptation. And then temptation can lead to sin, and then sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And you have this progress that takes place where lust is back here, and lust isn't the same thing as sin yet, but lust led to temptation. And then temptation, once it was acted upon, led to sin, and then sin, once it's acted upon, leads to death. And so it really depends on the context as to whether or not lust is a sexual word, whether it's a greedy thing, whether it's a morally neutral thing, whether it is a sin, whether it's not a sin. And what we're going to do tonight is look at four passages about lust where you'll see what I'm going to call the good side of lust. Uh, there's some ways in which the Bible uses that exact same word, epithumeo, the verb form of the word. It means I lust, I desire, I crave. And it's actually used for something good. Jesus is said to do it. Uh, we are supposed to do it. Righteous men and prophets have done it. It is something that uh, the Bible calls for us to do, only we're lusting for something good. Um, it, another side point, not only is context important, it's also important to remember that your Bible translators have a difficult job because sometimes you can translate that word as lust and it makes a lot of sense, like what Jesus says in Matthew 5, to lust after a woman. That, that makes sense. But that same word is used in context where, we'll see here in just a minute, Jesus, when he says, I desired to eat this meal with you. That's the same word as desire, but you would never say, like, I lusted to eat this meal with you. That'd be a really weird translation. But in Greek, it's the same word. And so your translators have to make a lot of decisions about the best way to translate certain words. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes... Uh, we want them to use the same English word for every Greek word, and that just isn't always going to give you the most accurate rendering. There's a wealth of English words that could be helpful in covering some of the nuances that these different words have. Well, anyway, the word uh, epithumeo, the word translated as lust or covet, has a wide range of meaning, and we're going to look at some of the positive meanings associated with it here tonight. That's better than what we talked about this morning anyway, so, so I'm taking the easy way out and talking about that tonight. Um, so the first one is going to be in Matthew chapter 13. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, 
what, if we're going to say don't lust over this, what should we lust for instead? What should we replace? You know, it's difficult to tell someone not to do something if you're not going to then replace that with a healthier option. Uh, you know, if you just say, you know, don't eat junk food, okay, but, but I'm still going to be hungry, so what should I eat? Well, let's eat something healthy. You know, you, can, you replace the bad with something good. And so we're going to talk tonight about what types of things we should covet. What types of things that we uh, perhaps could benefit from lusting after? And in Matthew 13, you get an interesting one. Matthew 13 is the third of five major speeches given by Jesus in Matthew. So Matthew is, a, is an interesting book. Uh, it has a lengthy introduction and conclusion, like the birth narrative and the death and resurrection of Jesus. But everything in between there, the ministry of Jesus, it's a cycle. It's a cycle of five major speeches, and in between those speeches, you have these series of, of miracle workings. So Jesus will uh, do some miracles and gather a large crowd, and then his first speech is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and then he'll, chapters uh, you know, 8 and 9, he'll do more miracles, and then his second speech is chapter 10, and that's a lengthy uh, mission discourse sometimes it's called. That's where he sends his disciples out. And then chapters 11 and 12, uh, he does uh, some miracles, but but there's also, he deals with conflict and confrontations that arise. But then chapter 13 is his third major speech, and it's a series of parables. And you, you can go through and you'll see that Matthew is just this cycle. And each of the speeches will end with the same words, when he finished these words, or when he finished these parables, or when he finished these teachings. And there's this little indicator right there in the text that you've just passed the next cycle and you're about to, to start, start a new one. Uh, and so in Matthew 13, we're in the middle cycle, and he is revealing the mysteries of his kingdom. You know, Jesus's kingdom was mysterious. Uh, it is not at all what people expected. It caught people off guard when it came, and, and many people rejected it because of that. Um, if you were to read a lot of passages in the Old Testament looking for the kingdom, I'm sympathetic to those who thought that it would be something more like David's uh, victorious physical kingdom, uh, you know, like a violent kingdom. There are passages in the Old Testament that it face value to me, read kind of like that. Uh, there are passages that make it sound like it's going to conquer the other nations. And if that's, if you're just using standard language, it's going to conquer other nations, and you're thinking about a king like David who killed Goliath and who killed his tens of thousands, you know, you, you can easily think that that's what the Messiah figure is going to be like. He's going to be a great warrior. And Jesus is coming, and he is bringing a very different kind of kingdom with a different kingdom ethic. The Sermon on the Mount is laying out that kingdom ethic. Well, here in Matthew 13, he's revealing some of the mysteries of that kingdom that will surprise people. Some of the reasons that people tend to miss the kingdom. And, and, and so Matthew 13 is a powerful passage, and it's all of these parables that as you dive into them and try to interpret them and try to understand them, they reveal bits about the kingdom. If Jesus would have said, the kingdom of heaven is like, that's how he starts a lot of the parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a mighty warrior who goes out there and slays his enemies to establish God's righteousness in the land. I think a lot of people would have said, amen. If he would have said the kingdom of heaven is like a massive army that arises and fights against oppression and justice prevails, I think a lot of people would have said, absolutely. But when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of heaven is like 
a man who goes and he sows seed, and then uh, an enemy sows uh, his, uh, you know, weeds in there, then they grow up together, and you look at this field, and it just looks like a mess full of some wheat and some weeds, and, and it's hard to even tell what's good and what's bad, and that's what it's like. People are going to hear that and think, how is that what the kingdom is like? Like that's, um, when you're reading Daniel and you're getting these images of the kingdom, it doesn't sound a lot like that. And so to me, that answers some important questions, you know? Why is it that we say Jesus is king, but I turn on the news and it doesn't look too much like Jesus is king? Sometimes it's like the kingdom of heaven is here and you can see some of the great things accomplished by the kingdom. You really can. There's good things that are happening and there's, there's people who are being fed. There's people who are being saved. There's the, the righteousness of Jesus is making a difference in this world. But you can just as easily look at the world and you can see that it looks like people are as wicked as they've ever been. And it looks like there's still violence and there's still crime and there's still hatred and there's still prejudice and there's still oppression and all of that stuff. And you think, well, what's going on here? Well, it's helpful to read some of these parables like the wheat and the, and the tares. And, and you see them growing up together. And Jesus never promised that the kingdom is going to only look like God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven in all places and at all times. Sometimes it'll be messy. Sometimes it'll look, well, you'll see some kingdom here and over here. It won't look like it at all, and it'll grow up together. But we long for a day of separation that's going to come. That's a helpful aspect of the, of the kingdom that helps clarify some things that could be confusing that Jesus is explaining here in the parables. But notice, Jesus is trying to prepare people for the things that they're not going to understand about the kingdom. And he's trying to prepare them for it. And that's what so many of these parables do. You might think, well, the kingdom doesn't look at all like, uh, like uh, something that's big and powerful and as glorious as, say, Solomon's kingdom was. Like Solomon's kingdom, the queen of Sheba came there to learn from his wisdom, and, and it was wealthy and powerful, and they were able to build a huge temple and all that stuff. And Jesus and his ragtag bunch of disciples don't look like that. And he says, well, it's like a mustard seed. But just, why? just wait. Just watch. See what's going to happen. And, you know, at this point in time, it, it, looking back, it kind of, I can get that. We have a group of Christians from the church here in Albania working with Christians there who 2,000 years later on the other side of the world are still proclaiming the goodness of God and the glory of Jesus and his kingship. Like, that mustard seed's grown, it has, and it, it's done some incredible things throughout world history. And, and so the, the parables are helpful in understanding why the kingdom sometimes looks as it does when it's not what you would have thought it was going to be. They would not have thought it would have been a small thing like a mustard seed. They would not have thought that it looked like a field full of wheats and tares. But Jesus is revealing these mysteries. And some people will learn that. And they'll follow that. And they'll ask more questions about it. And they'll get more of those mysteries revealed. And they'll get that helpful information. And some people will think, you're wrong. That's not what the kingdom is like. And they'll walk away. And in Matthew 13, Jesus is discussing those different types of responses to his parables. Some people will eat it up and they'll want to learn more and they'll desire more information, whereas some people will say, no, I'm going to stick with Daniel and say that's not what the kingdom is like and I'm going to go my own way. And they won't probe and they won't dive deeper into them. They'll close their eyes and they'll shut their ears to what Jesus is saying. So in Matthew 13, in verse 10, after giving a parable about how different people will hear the message of the kingdom uh, and, the, and the word of God, his disciples ask him, why do you speak to them in parables? 
And Jesus said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, Whoever has, uh, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has from, will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not understand. There are some people who are standing right there, and they're all hearing the same thing. But some people see and some people understand, whereas some people, they see and they reject and they hear and they don't get it and they walk away. And Jesus says this is actually, in verse 14, a case of fulfillment of something from the Old Testament. Uh, In verse 14, it says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. So, by the way, we did a lesson a couple weeks ago on the idea of fulfillment um, and and, uh, how uh, basically if you see that word, you shouldn't immediately think there was a prediction made about the future. It usually is more something along the lines of something that was true back then is coming to pass in our day as well, and it's coming to pass in some unexpected ways. When it says that this was fulfilled, if you go back, the, the passage Jesus quotes says this, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. That's a quotation from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6 is the passage where Isaiah is standing before the very throne of God, and and he has his sins removed and purged from him, and God needs to send a messenger, and Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then God tells him, okay, but this is the type of people you're going to be speaking to. And he quotes this right here. Go back and read Isaiah 6. It's not a prediction about how people will respond to parables in in 700 years. It's, It's a message to Isaiah about the people he's going to be preaching to. But it has a fuller and richer meaning when you read that text in the context of Jesus and what he's doing. And so he's saying what what happened to Isaiah is happening right now. And the people that rejected Isaiah, who think, by the way, they're on Isaiah's team, like like the Pharisees, they would have thought them and Isaiah are preaching the same thing. And Jesus is saying, no, you're actually aligning yourself with the group that rejected him. And Jesus is aligning himself with the preacher of righteousness like Isaiah. And so Jesus says that. Notice in verse 15, this is an important phrase also, where it says, the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear. And then notice the phrase, they have closed their eyes. In Matthew, the blame is being placed on the people who are, they have eyes and they're standing there, but they have closed their eyes so that they don't see what Jesus is saying. If they would open their eyes, if they would probe deeper, if they would uh, try to try to figure this out, try to ask more questions perhaps, then maybe they would understand some of these things. But they've closed their eyes so they don't. So then verse 16 and 17, he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men, and here's our word, desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. 
The mysteries of the kingdom that Jesus is revealing is something that prophets and righteous people in ages past had longed to hear. They had craved to hear. They had coveted to hear that message. Not in a sinful way. It's something that they desperately wanted, though, and it hadn't been revealed yet. Jesus is now revealing it to his disciples, and they are the ones who find themselves in a more privileged position than even Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and some of the great prophets of the Old Testament. They are the ones who are able to stand there and hear what Jesus is saying. He says they coveted to hear it, and you guys actually get to. So it's a tremendous blessing. But if you're going to talk about the good side of coveting, the good side of lust, I'll say one thing that Jesus mentions here that we could all benefit from is don't lust for the sin of this world. Don't lust for more money. Don't lust for those things. But a lust for the word of God that reveals who Jesus is and reveals what he's doing in our world. That would be a good thing to covet, to try and to desire more of that. That's the type of thing that can change you and transform you into something better, into something different than you are. That's the type of thing that can transform you into the very image of Jesus himself. So what he says is, they coveted that, and you get to hear it. By the way, what a tragedy. What a tragedy that there are people in this day that Jesus is speaking to who are standing right in front of him, hearing the words of God revealed through the Messiah, and they walk away from it, thinking they're too righteous to accept it. He says, there are righteous people for thousands of years who've craved to hear this, and here it is right in front of you, given right to you, and you close your eyes to it and you walk away. Let's make sure that we, as people who I think have been richly blessed in a lot of ways, we have the teaching of Jesus. It's been preserved for us. By the way, our Bibles, we, even as Christians, are living at a very rare time where for most of the history of Christianity, people didn't just own Bibles at their house. They didn't just have all of these books bound together in a nice book that they kept on their shelf, translated into their language. Like, Scripture was something that was difficult even for Christians to be able to ever read and behold. If you are holding a Bible right now, you are one of the most blessed human beings who has ever lived in this world. Read it. Make use of it. Dive into it. Enjoy it. Uh, Worship God with Scripture because it is a type of thing that prophets of old craved to be able to do, and we have it right. We can just sit here and read Matthew 13, like, easily. You can read it on your phone. You can read it, you know, while you're waiting at the doctor's office. Like, it's right there so easily accessible to you. Take advantage of it. So, number one, if you're going to crave something good or lust in a good way, Lust for the mystery and the word of God that's being revealed. Uh, Secondly, Luke chapter 22, another passage to look at. Luke chapter 22, this is uh, as Jesus is uh, preparing for his uh, ultimate death on the cross and his arrest. He gathers together with, with his disciples. I made reference to this one just a moment ago. But in Luke 22, verses 14 and 15, It says, when the hour had come, Jesus reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
So notice there the translators are, they don't use the word covet or lust. They use a much more, you know, morally neutral translation of I've earnestly desired. This is something I want to do, to have this meal with you. But that, that's the same word right there. He says, for I say to you, I shall never eat of it uh, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And with this, he then institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. So a couple of things I think are, um, may lie behind why Jesus very much wants to eat this meal with them. And I think we could learn a few things from it. One is it is a time to have a meal with people who are the most meaningful to him in the world. Um, we should enjoy times like that of fellowship with one another where you get to sit with one another, enjoy each other's company, and enjoy a meal God has blessed you with. It's a simple thing. We eat a lot. I'm teaching through Ecclesiastes uh, on Sunday mornings in a Bible class, so maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I'm thinking about it, you know, more now than I normally would. But Ecclesiastes repeatedly talks about the benefit, uh, the gift of God, the reward from God of just having a good meal with other people that you care about. Enjoy that. That's the best thing you can do in life is to sit there and enjoy a meal with people. And here Jesus is going to, with people who mean the world to him, have a meal with him. And so that, I think, surely is part of it. It's also their last meal, which certainly gives it more special significance. Uh, Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. And so for this final meal, it is a final time to be gathered together with every one of them and to, to impart, I think, some of the most important truths he possibly can. Uh, as you read through about this meal, especially in the other Gospels, you see Jesus does a number of things to teach them uh, important truths. Even in, in Luke, he, the, he teaches them about the way that they ought to uh, consider greatness in the kingdom of heaven. That's a message they need to learn because they're confused about it. He talks to them about a, a lot of really important things. And so I think he desires this meal because it's a teaching opportunity. He desires the meal because it's a farewell. He desires the meal because it's a time to enjoy uh, them one last time before he departs from this life. Uh, and also, it's where he institutes the Lord's Supper, uh, you know, and that's something that he wants to give to them to pass on from generation to generation. We did that today. There aren't many meals that have been around for 2,000 years, but we had one today. Uh, there aren't many meals that have traveled the world but we experienced one today, and Jesus wanted to start that with his disciples. And so it's a special, it's a special meal, and it's a special moment for a lot of reasons. But it reminds me, if you're going to covet something, covet a meal with people who mean a lot to you. Covet a chance to impart wisdom to others. Covet gathering together and taking the Lord's Supper with the church. Jesus did. Jesus gathered together and he said, I, I coveted to do this with you. So let's make sure that if there are so many things that can, in this world, that are going to try to steal your desire, steal your attention, steal your lust. And Jesus, I think, gives us an example of someone who aims it in the right direction. He says, you're going to desire things. Everyone is. Desire more than those other things to gather together and to have a meal together, together, and in memory of Jesus to celebrate who he is, to celebrate the Eucharist, the giving of thanks uh, for what Jesus has done for us, for his death and resurrection. Let's prioritize worshiping together, gathering together, eating together uh, as Christians. That's something Jesus coveted. Uh, third, if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, We'll see another example. This is from the letters, uh, the writings of Paul, but he uses the word in another positive way. So desire the word of God, 
desire worship and, and the Lord's Supper with one another and gathering together. In uh, chapter 3 in verse 1, especially considering what we did last week with installing new elders, this is, this is an interesting one. Uh, this is, this is a, a helpful one to think about for a minute. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes, It is a trustworthy statement of if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. That word desires in that passage is our key word, uh, the word lust or covet. It's the same word that Jesus uses uh, in Matthew chapter 5 when he's talking about, uh, you know, lusting after a woman. Uh, here, again, context matters. It's not a sinful desire, uh, but it is something that he says it's actually a really good thing to desire, to be an elder or an overseer in the church. You know, one of the reasons that he believes that it is a fine work he covets to do or he desires to do is because there is so much good that can be done through service to the church and so much good that can be done by, for a congregation that has a good, healthy eldership. When I think of uh, congregations with a good, solid eldership, uh, I am very thankful to be uh, able to work with one. I, I think that the eldership here has been fantastic for a very long time, and I think it just got even stronger, and I'm very excited about that. I'm very thankful for that, and I think that that will produce great things in the future. But the reason that it's a good work that should be desired is because so much good for the kingdom can happen through it. And I would say, you know, not everyone is going to be an elder, and not everyone needs to be an elder. Uh, but the logic here is if you can have a responsibility, a task, a ministry that is of benefit to the church and that helps others, then that's a good thing to desire. That's a good thing to covet. When you consider how many things in the world you can put your time and effort and energy into. You can put your time and effort and energy into sports, and you can put your time and your effort and your energy into your job and, and into a lot of things. And some of those things, there's probably varying levels of benefit and of good and of, of, of value to it. But there's not going to be much in this world, if anything at all, that you'll find more valuable than putting your time, effort, and energy into the kingdom of God. If you're going to covet the good of something, covet the good of the church, covet the good of the people that you're with, and work for that. Uh, when he says that uh, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, that's something that takes forethought of thinking, you know what, I care about the church, I want to help the church, so I'm going to begin planning my life now so that I will one day be able to be a leader in the church. I'll one day be able to be, I don't think you accidentally stumble into being an elder or something like that. It is something that a lifetime of faithfulness has been preparing for you for. When you read through the, the qualifications, we gave, you know, entire lessons on these uh, uh, you know, earlier in the year, these are intentional, purposeful actions that someone has, over a period of time, been able to live out faithfully. Um, and they're really, the thing that's incredible about them is uh, how many of them are just things you would apply universally. Like, they're things every Christian should, should strive to do. They're not, they're, they don't make you superhuman or anything like that. It's, it's faithful Christian living but it's by someone who has tried to do that uh, for a lengthy period of time and has proven themselves that they can. So they have a good reputation as someone who has demonstrated uh, consistently that they can live this kind of life. And again, you don't do that on accident. 
You do that when you take the Word of God seriously. You do that when you strive to actually put uh, Christian living at the forefront of your life. And when you do that, you might find yourself having a powerful impact on people around you in the community and in in the Christian family. That's what an elder is. And if you do that, that's a good work that you've coveted to do. That's a good work that, that, uh, that uh, you are, uh, are, are working towards. Now, I will say, like anything else, the word covet has a good side and a bad side. If, if you want to be an elder and you covet the role of elder and it's not uh, out of love for the church, but it's out of love for yourself because, oh, I'll get to be in charge, then don't do it. You know, that's, that's obviously that's the wrong motive and you're going the wrong direction there. Uh, in, in, Matt, in Luke 22, where we just were during that meal Jesus is having, he explicitly says to his disciples, Look, the Gentiles, the way they do leadership is they lord it over people and they try to have great men who exercise authority over others and tell them what to do. And it is not to be that way among you. Uh, you know, if, if you're looking for it for like, you know, authority or power or something like that, then look for something else. But if you genuinely love and sacrificially care about the church, then being an elder is a great thing to desire. And so is any type of service that you can render for the church, any ministry you get involved in, whether it's mission work, whether it's financially supporting the church, whether it is teaching your Bible classes, whether it's helping with the youth, whether it's helping with the older people. Like, there are so many ways that you can help benefit this body. And if you desire to do that, you desire something very good. You covet something good. So covet the good of the church. Finally, uh, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 6. And this is another place where that same word is used. Um, In Hebrews 6, you have the beginning of the chapter is a warning about pressing on to maturity uh, because there seems to be a lull in the church there. And there even seems to be some who not only have grown dull of hearing and slow in hearing, some have actually turned back from the faith that they committed themselves to. And Hebrews chapter 6 gives the warnings about what happens when you commit yourself to Jesus and then you fall away and turn back from it. He says in verse 7, he gives an illustration of what that is like. He says, the ground that drinks the rain, which, has, uh, which uh, often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. All right, so like the whole gift of the Holy Spirit and the gift of salvation and all the good things that God does for you when you become a Christian, if you receive that like good soil and you produce good fruitful vegetation, then you're producing something good and you're receiving a blessing from God and all that is good. But if you take the Holy Spirit that God has given and the salvation God has given and the Word of God and all of these good gifts from God in verse 8 and you respond to it, and yield thorns and thistles, and basically that's his way of talking about those who have turned back and turned away, he says then it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. So don't do that. Uh, Don't fall away. Rather, press on to maturity. Rather, uh, see if you can keep growing and and deepening in your faith and in your commitment. Verse 9 is where he he switches, because that's getting a little negative. And he says, but, beloved, we are convinced of better things for you. We don't think you're going to go that route. Uh, I love the confidence that he has in this church that he's writing to. He, he, he knows that it's possible, and he knows that some have. But he says, I believe in you guys, and I believe that you're going to do better than that. He says, I'm convinced of better things con- 
concerning you and things that accompany salvation. Though we are speaking, like, though we're speaking in this way, though we're speaking about some of these dark things, I know better things are on your horizon. I know salvation awaits you. I know better things are coming. Verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work of love, which you have sown, shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So he says, so God's watches and God sees that you still care for the saints and you still serve one another. You're still doing good things. God's not going to forget that. And he's not going to uh, reject that. You're doing good. I think you're going to keep doing good. So keep on keeping on. Verse 11, and we desire... That's our key word. We covet, we lust, we desire uh, that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you won't be sluggish and dull like those people who fall away or those people who stop growing. You won't be sluggish and dull, but imitators of those who faith, who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you know what he covets here, what he desires here? For them to grow and to be faithful and to have a full assurance of hope even until the end so that they ultimately inherit the promises of God. God has made some wonderful promises, promises of salvation, promises of the age to come, promises of, of covenant and faithfulness and forgiveness. And he covets that they will continue to grow and press on and be able to receive those things. You know, there's a lot of things in this world that'll try to steal your desire and try to steal your lusts, and try to steal whatever it is you covet, and so many times we can give into those. What we're seeing in this lesson tonight, I hope, is that if we're going to reject those things, we should redirect our aim and our desires in other areas. And Jesus in Matthew 13 talks about prophets and righteous men who coveted hearing the mysteries that he was revealing in the Word of God. And we see that Jesus coveted to be with his disciples one last time, to enjoy a meal with them, and to have the Lord's Supper with them, and to teach them valuable truths before he left and before he died. And we see that in uh, 1 Timothy 3, the office of being an overseer, in anyone who is helping and serving the church is coveting a good work and a good desire. That's something worth desiring and striving for. And we see right here that he says, the perhaps the most important thing you can covet is the spiritual growth of those around you as you press on to receive the very promises of God. So yeah, there's a lot of things that you can desire in the world, but here are four really good things to desire. And these are things that will set your heart and your mind in the right direction as you seek to live faithfully to God. And if we can help you do any of these things, if you have these desires, one of the beautiful things about God is that he can fulfill them. He can fulfill your desire for salvation, your desire to serve in the kingdom. And the opportunity is available to you even right here tonight. And if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, who would like to become part of this community of faith, there's anyone here who would like their sins forgiven by a God who's ready and willing, please let that be known. You can name Jesus as your Lord and have your sins washed away in baptism. Please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.